well, as Paul Harvey would say, now the rest of the story. I want to continue where we left off last night, and I hope that uh, we're on the same page, that we ought to leave a church for the next generation and ought to be a thriving church. Our children need it. God expects it of us. Our nation certainly needs it, and quite frankly, we need it. As long as we're on this side of eternity, we need to be in a place where we can sense the presence of God. And so then the question is, well, what kind of church ought we ought to be building? And there's a way in which if you look at the current trends in the church that you might be confused. I mean, if you say, now, we need to be building a certain kind of church uh, what we ought to do is go down to the Christian bookstore and, and to buy some books on church growth and see what's happening in the world today and what churches are doing. I want you to know if you do that, you're going to leave confused. Because quite frankly, we live in a culture and nobody knows really what's happening to the degree that they could predict the future. Um, I uh, watched an interview uh, two years ago, where Warren Buffett, the great investor, was speaking to his shareholders of his company. And in one hand, he held up a list, and he said, on this list are the 30 largest companies in 1990. And then he held up another list, and he said, and, and here are the 30 largest companies in 2020, 30 years later. He said, now how many of you, uh, how many companies on the first list do you think would be on the second? Of the 30 largest companies in 1990, how many do you think make the list 30 years later? And the answer was zero. Zero. Not a one. And so what he was saying was that as an investor, it's complicated. Because the world is complicated to predict. The trends that are coming into the life of the church are difficult to predict. And so if you want to have a five or ten year plan as a church, I want you to know that that's a tough thing to draw up these days because we don't know really what the future holds. You know, sometimes when young ministers go out and, and, and when you talk to, I can say that now that I'm in the autumn of my life, talk about the young ministers but, but a lot of them go out to their first church and, uh, and you ask them, well, what, what do you think you're going to do? And inevitably, they'll say, if they're young, we need to get our church into the community. And then the question is, why do you need to be in the community? <laughs> and, and, and I get that we need to be doing the work of the Lord in the community, but usually what they'll say is, well, we need to grow the church, we need to win people, so we need to get into our community. And if your ideal of getting into your community to grow is part of your church growth, that comes right out of a church uh, growth book from 1990. I mean, in 1990, you had a building and you had a phone number, and if you put up the extra money, you had an ad in the yellow pages. So if you were going to introduce yourself to people, if they were going to get to find out that you're nice people, you had to get into the community. 
When people walk into the church that I pastor, they know what my wife looks like. They know what my kids look like. They know what our services look like. They have an ideal of whether they think I'm a nice person or not. They know what our stone leader looks like. They want know what his kids look like. They know what our doctrinal statement is. They know the layout of our building. It's called the internet. You don't have to introduce yourself to the community anymore. Take all that money that you are going to give away and put it into your streaming services because that's where they're coming from and so I just point that out that's one of the things that that is very much changing about the church and if you try to strategize based on the uh, way that the nation is going you will be perplexed but when you come to the Bible which is the eternal word of God and eternal means it's just as relevant today as it was when it was written. It's as young now as it was the day Jesus said it. It's eternal. It changes not. Jesus, when he spoke, knew about our day. And so when he spoke, he spoke taking our situation into account. And when you come to the word of God, I think that you find that there's really two things that Jesus drives home forcefully that he wants his church to be and, and that he essentially says if we'll be these two things I'll be with you I'll send my spirit among you and if I'm with you and my spirit is with you you're going to be okay trends change nations change uh, the world is difficult to predict, but if Jesus is in the boat, if the Spirit is working among us, we will thrive regardless of what happens. And so these two things keep coming back again in Scripture. And so I'm going to read out of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is one place you could probably preach this sermon from uh, maybe every church in the book of Revelation, you could probably preach this sermon from most of, of, the, uh, of the epistles. I'm going to preach it out of verses 1 through 7 of Revelation 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden, seven golden candlestands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, found them to be liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Now remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and repent and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm in need of bifocals. I don't want to admit it, but it's coming on me, and that's what you see. I'm going to get big print first and see if I can survive. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
there's two things, and there's more here, but I, I just want to take these two because I don't want to keep you forever. But I know I'm in Newark, so I can take my time anyway. But I want to give you two. The first is this. Jesus Christ wants us to be a church that proclaims and defends the truth that is in the Bible. Now notice that the one thing that they do well, he says, is that you have persevered, you cannot bear those who are evil, you test the apostles and you found them to be liars. And then later on he says, and you don't like the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which was a heresy. Thank the Lord. You find the false apostles out, you will not stand heresy. And again, that's something that he says to at least four other churches here in the book of Revelation. It's very important to Jesus and for the future of the church. And when we think about what it means to leave a church for the future, it's important that we be a church that is pure in doctrine, that stands for the truth, that is clearly recorded in the Bible. I like how uh, Paul will say it to Timothy. Uh, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now that's an interesting passage because there's four characteristics of the church here. He says, first of all, you're the house of God. You're the family of God. You're brothers and sisters. Now, a lot of churches really work on that and they do that sort of well. In fact, in any community, you've got a bunch of churches founded in the last 15 years that somehow have worked water into their name. It's water life, water this, water that, rolling fountain, whatever. And uh, community church. And in general, they do that really well, or they, at least they try. And if you go in there uh, to their church, we're the house of God, we do life together, we do small groups together, we get together, 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 together. It's not really a church for introverts. We do everything together. We're a family. We're tight. As well we ought to be. We're the household of God. But then the second characteristic is that we're the church of God. And church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. And so that's a Greek word uh, that... Uh, often, uh, I think, referred to in towns. They didn't have media like we do. When an announcement had to be made, when there had to be a meeting, someone would go out and he would call people out of houses, out of businesses, into the public square, and that gathering was the ecclesia, the ones who had heard the message and had come out and had joined together to hear the word that was being spoken. Now, that's also the church, where the people who are just not the family of God, but we're the ones who have heard the word of the Lord. We've heard the gospel. We've come out of the world. We've come out of our lives, and we've joined together to take a stand for what we've heard. And then it says that we are the pillar and ground of the truth. 
Now, I, I think anyone reading that in the context of Timothy being in Ephesus would have had to think about the uh, temple of Diana, which is Roman, Artemis if you're Greek. In Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering, you had one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Diana or Artemis. It had 127 columns around it. Many of those columns were overlaid with gold. They were jewel encrusted. And so as you think about that temple, the columns were the ground. They held it up, so to speak. They were the foundation. They were the support. But they were also the pillar. And those pillars, literally in the Greek, the word is stylos. So that's where we get the word style from. So the church then is held up by the truth and the style, the class, the fashion, the thing that makes it beautiful is what it preaches and teaches. It's a style of the church. So I think what Paul is saying is when I look at a church, I don't look at the building and say, wow, that's a great building. I don't look at the singing and necessarily say, wow, that's a great church. I don't look at the coffee bar and say, wow, that's a great church. They got great coffee. I don't look at the outward appearance and the number of acres that they have. When I look at a church, the thing that is beautiful, the style of the church, the thing that attracts me is what is being preached and taught in that church. That's I think what Paul is getting at. And again, a lot of churches say we're the family of God, but Paul also says, but we're also the called out of God who are proclaiming the beauty of the truth and are held up by the truth. We are the, uh, well, Jude would say that we ought to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We are, we are the contenders for the truth. Proverbs 23, 23 says we ought to buy the truth and sell it not. We are the safe holders of the word of God, the truth that has been delivered. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Washington? Psychiatry? The school system? If we don't hold on to these truths and pass them to the next generation... Who is going to do it? Nobody's going to do it. Most of the churches, I shouldn't say that, a lot of the churches that are open today, they're not doing it. If biblical Christians don't hold it and pass it, it's not going to happen. And we live in a very moral, uh, or, or, uh, or not a moralistic, we do live in a moralistic culture, but, but we live in a, in a culture that, that really doesn't believe in absolutes. We live in a very relativistic culture, and I think that you understand that. And, and in many ways, that can get into the church. Um, you know, I remember being uh, a teenager and listening, as, as I think many of you did, to the older preachers of the Next last generation, Brother Tony, and uh, and uh, 
Now, I don't remember him doing this, but, but, I, but I, I, remember, I remember sitting there as a teenager thinking, the old guys are really overplaying it. I mean, because they, they would say, you know, we're, we're getting into moral relativism, and the day's going to come when you just won't have abortion, you have euthanasia. And I wondered what was so bad about the euthanasia. But, different word. Uh, but uh, they would say, you know, if life in the womb isn't valuable, no life's going to be valuable. I think, well, that's sort of overstating it. And, and then they would say, you know, and, and if we don't define families right, you got to get to the place where a family's anything you want it to be. I, I remember when Dad, uh, I, I, was, I was sitting in the living room one, one night, uh, when I was uh, a teenager, and I was watching the original Full House. Anybody remember that? Original Full House. Jesse and Danny and... Who's the other one? Jo Joey, yeah. And my dad came in, he, he had his food, and, and he, so he comes in, and, and he's sitting there. He says, so what's this show about? And... Uh, I should have just turned it off, but the storyline must have been absolutely compelling for me to leave it on with Dad sitting there. And, uh, and he said, so those three guys live together, but those three kids are, are, now, who's related to who? So there's not a woman in the house? Just three guys and three, and, uh, and he said, see, see, that's no good right there. That's going to be a problem. And uh, he said, because that's a cute way of saying a family isn't a mom and a dad and children. A family is anything you want it to be as long as they're in the same house and claim to love each other. And I thought he was nuts. But, but, but he's not so nuts anymore. <laughs> I mean, there, is, there was this move away where now... A family is anything you want it to be. Uh, you know, you get into this thing where, where you started with abortion, but now, you know, the argument is viability. Can the child survive outside of the womb? Uh, um, you know, they, they would talk about pornography, and, and, and you would hear things say, you know what, if you let pornography go, it's going to get nuts because one man's pornography is another man's art. It's just going to be relative. So it's going to be everywhere. And uh, so, so they were talking about these kinds of things. They would say things like, listen, if, if we get to a place where you have a lot of different religions, you won't even be able to pray in Jesus' name because that would be offensive. Because who's to say whether your God's any better than, than another God? We're going to get to a place in America where you can't even pray in Jesus' name. Um, and so they were saying these things, and I was thinking, these guys are really working the crowd, man. <laughs> this will never happen. What well, happened? It happened. You have this moral relativism that is very much a part of the world and can be very much a part of the church where your doctrine and your doctrine and what I believe and what you believe. And who's to say anybody knows the truth? But listen. There are variances, but, but 
almost everything, most everything in this book is clear and it's clear that God wants it to be kept the way that it is. The Ten Commandments aren't open for, uh, aren't open for debate. Uh, they're, they're still true. We're to have no other gods but the one true God. We're not to have idolatry. We're not to take his name in vain. We're to honor our father and mother. We're, uh, uh, we're to keep the Sabbath. That one slips a lot. Most people have nine commandments, not ten. I think there's still something to the Sabbath. Um, I don't think it was all fulfilled in Christ or else you got nine commandments. You don't have the ten. I think there's something to that. But thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal or lie or covet. Those things are true. The truth that comes to us in the Garden of Eden and are reaffirmed in the Mosaic Law and again come into the New Testament, those are not negotiable things. One man, one woman for life. Gender assigned at birth. Those are Garden of Eden things that come into the Mosaic Law and also find their way into the New Testament, at least in principle. The fact that we ought to care about the creation, that we're stewards of the creation, that's in there. The fact, listen, you know the Bible says you ought to be kind to your animals. That's in, garden of, that's in the garden, that's in the law of Moses. I think that sort of finds its way into the New Testament. Now, it doesn't include cats, but everything else, yeah. Be stewards. Uh, um, those are things that are really not negotiable. They aren't. There's still one way to heaven. His name's Jesus Christ. There's a heaven, hell. There's a final judgment coming. Listen, so much of this book is not, it doesn't have a hint of grayness. Not a hint of grayness. And if we don't preserve that, who is going to preserve it. Who's going to preserve it? It's going to be lost. And, and, and who wants a church in 30 years that doesn't know what it believes? Don't we already have enough of those churches? So the first thing I think that Jesus says here is, you defended the gospel, you defended the truth. You don't like those who pervert the gospel. Thank you, thank you. I like that about you. You should keep doing that. You should continue to do that. Paul says, listen, what you preach is the style and the foundation of the church. Thank God you do that. Keep doing it. And then secondly, I didn't think I'd get to the second point this quick. I'll go back and say all this again. I think I'm going to say it better. No. And secondly, not only are we ought to be a truth-telling church, but we need to be a church that's in love with Jesus. That's a very simple thing. It says, this I have against you, that you've left your first love. Left your first love. I'm so glad you're standing for the gospel as I've revealed it to you, and you haven't compromised. But I also want you to love me. 
first. You should love me first. Now, what, what does it mean when Jesus says, I want you to love me? Because love is hard to define. I mean, you have your love languages. For some, it's words of affirmation. For others, it's acts of service. I, 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 I do the five love language tests with, with all my folks I do premarital counseling with. All the women, it's acts of service. You just know. It's doing the dishes. And, and uh, it's never gifts with women. Gifts is one way. And I think guys think it's gifts. No, if you're in deep trouble with a woman, forget the chocolates, do the dishes. You get out of the trouble. Uh, that's what they want. Um, and so you, so you have the love languages. And I forget the other two. What are the other two? Gifts, acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time. Quality time. That's a big one, too. Acts of service, quality time. What's Jesus' love language? I think that you can make that a big, big, big subject. But, but I think there's two things that come out of these letters to the churches. The first is priority. Jesus says, I want to know that I'm first with you. You've left your first love. I want to be your priority. Now, <clears throat> I used to really preach this hard and say, you know, if he's your first priority, you'll be in church when the doors open, you'll be reading your Bible every day, you'll be praying every day. And then I got married and watched my wife with four kids. So I, I'm, I'm a little less harsh on that anymore because there were days when the only time she got to pray was when she was in the bathroom before somebody was beating on it so so I, I think that probably if you're a retiree first love might be a little different in how you live that out than if you're a mother with four kids Um, but there ought to be clear patterns in our lives that Jesus is first. And if he is first, there will be clear patterns. You probably can't make every single service in the year. There's probably very little that get perfect attendance. But if, if Jesus is first, I think there will be times when you're in church when you're very tired and you don't want to be. You may be in church in your work clothes because you didn't get home to take a shower. Things come up. Issues arise. That's life. But there will be patterns in your life that those who are close to you will be able to see clearly Jesus is number one in his life. You know, I, I've done funerals of people 
and, and they've been in church their whole lives, and their friends will want to get up and say stuff about them. And they'll say stuff like, Bob loved, Bob really loved hunting. The next guy will get up and say, and you forgot Bob really loved the Tennessee Volunteers football team. And there's Bob laying there in camouflage with a Tennessee jersey laying in, in, in the coffin. It's like none of his friends knew Bob loved Jesus. I mean, when it's your time to die, and I'm not saying you shouldn't get buried in camouflage or a football jersey, but if you do, there ought to be a big Bible in there too. But, but hopefully when it's your time to die, they ought to know hunting wasn't the most important thing in your life. Sports weren't the most important thing in your life. Jesus Christ was the most important thing in my life. If you're putting anything in there, put a Bible and a cross. Leave the rest out. Wasn't that important to me? And again, if you have children, and we talked about that last night, it's not what you say, it's what they see. I think if you're a father, maybe they ought to see you moved. Sometimes in worship. Raise your hand. First time you put it up, you think everybody's staring at you and it feels like it's about 300 pounds. But you're doing it so your little boy knows Jesus is important to daddy. This is serious. Daddy ain't putting in his time. Daddy is serious about this. Um, there ought to be prayer in the home. Praying at night. Praying over the meal. It's a little thing to say, we don't eat in this house before we pray about it. Praying, is, praying comes first, then the eating. Because God is first in this house. Those are little signs along the way. Again, by the time you get to the end of your life, you should probably have a lot less money because you serve Jesus in many ways because you gave sacrificially to people and to things because you loved Jesus and you loved his work. And it cost you something. But he was first in your life. Now again, that may look different for different people. But it will be obvious in everybody's life of whom Jesus is first. He wants the priority. And the second of all, he wants the passion. Because remember, the last church he speaks to is the Laodicean church. And, uh, and he says, you are lukewarm, you need a hot and a cold. What he's saying to them is, you don't have any passion. You are a passionless people. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're sort of lukewarm, you sort of want me, you sort of don't. There's nothing that burns deeply inside of you for me. And I think, I think that's another aspect of just leaving your first love. I'm not your priority, and I don't inspire you anymore. Listen, when you're married, I know the honeymoon doesn't last forever. But that's probably because you ain't been honeymooning. Get you a cabin in Montana on the lake for a week and see if it comes back. Probably come back. You ain't been honeymooning. But even at that, 
there ought to be some level of passion somewhere. You ought to be happy when they get home. You ought to enjoy a meal together. There's got to be something going on when you look at each other. It just can't be passionless. It can't be. And Jesus is saying, where is your passion for me? You're completely lukewarm. Listen, no preacher ought to have to try to talk you in to celebrating and praising Jesus Christ. He's done too much. He's given too much. He saves. He sympathizes with us. He strengthens us. He sustains us. He defends us. He guides us. He's there for us. He didn't have to come from heaven all the way down here. He didn't have to lay his his throne or or his crown by the throne. He didn't have to do that. He came down here. He loved us before we even knew about him. Nobody ought to have to get you to be enthusiastic about that. Shouldn't be. Ought to be a passion there. And and Jesus is saying, I want a passion-filled church. Now listen. I just believe that if a church will stand for the truth and if it is a passion-filled church, that it's going to sustain it, that it's going to survive. I do know this. I know that a church that abandons the the truth and allows itself to go dead doesn't have a chance. So I think Jesus, again, is saying, hold the truth. If you'll preach the truth, if you'll teach the truth, if you'll sing the truth, and if you will be a church filled with people who who, uh, make me the priority and are passionate about me, I'll be there, my spirit will be among you, and you will survive whatever storm that comes in your culture. You know, uh, there's a movie uh, that came out a few years ago. And it was about uh, Ray Kroc, who founded McDonald's. Actually, he didn't exactly found it, but he stole it, but he franchised it. But but one of the things that annoyed Ray Kroc was that uh, in the early days of McDonald's, he would go out and visit the franchises, and they they would be selling chicken. I don't know if they sold tacos, but they messed with his menu. They didn't understand what a franchise was. You can't have McDonald's on the sign and say, well, people around here like chicken better. We'll sell chicken. And listen to me. Every local congregation is a franchise of the church of Jesus Christ. Every local church is. We don't get to change the menu. We don't get the change in the menu. The founder says, preach this and love me. Now, there are churches that are like those early McDonald's franchises. They're in places and they say, you know what, people around here like chicken more or people around here like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. People around here really don't like it when you preach on this and people around here don't really like it when you preach on that. So we're going to alter the menu. You don't have the right You're a franchise. Jesus is a founder. He sets the menu. And what he's saying is this. 
Tell them what I tell you to tell them. And love me and be a passion-filled church. Pass it off to your kids. Now, they're going to have to pass it off to their kids, and there's nothing you can do about that. If they drop the ball, that's on them. But give that to your children. You know what? I think that kind of church is going to survive in this world. I really do. I, I think people are tired of dry, dead religion. I think they are. I think they are. And I am finding people, and we are having lots of people moving into our area that are coming from places, how can I say this without being offensive? They're coming from blue states. And you don't come from blue states looking for a liberal church. And I'm finding that people want to hear the gospel. They're longing for it. But even if they don't want to hear it, we can't change it. We're a franchise. We're a franchise. Stand with me. I wonder today if any of this speaks to you. Maybe you're in a place where you feel the passions drifting, and, and I got to tell you, it's a full-time job as a Christian to keep your priorities straight and your light on fire. Full-time job. Make sure Jesus is where he needs to be. My family and kids are where they need to be. My ministry's where it needs to be. The job's where it needs to be. That's a full-time job. And so sometimes you get your priorities out of whack. That's you. Straighten up and fly right. Maybe tonight you want to come and pray. And if your passion is gone, only you know where your priorities are. Although others can sense it, you know better than they do. And if the love isn't there, if the passion isn't there, if a preacher has to work really hard to get you to be excited about Jesus Christ, you need to fix that in your life. Jesus said, fix it. Fix it. He's done too much. He's given too much for you to treat him like what he has done isn't all that big of a deal. It is. So don't leave here tonight in a lukewarm condition. You know your heart. You know your heart. You know your heart. Be honest with Jesus. He deserves it. And you know what? When you come to him, he doesn't cast you aside. You can come to Jesus Christ. Took me a while to figure this out. You can come to him after messing stuff up and he won't beat you down. You come to him. You say, I haven't been what I ought to be. I don't want to be this way. It's embarrassing. And I'm sorry that I've hurt you. And it seems like when you do that, he just baptizes you in love all over again takes you back, throws his arms around you, brings you back into his love. 
Where are you at today? Again, I'm finished with this. These are very important days. Very important days. Those of us who live the next 20 or 30 years will see if the church dies or if it revives. Very important. This is not a time to be playing religion and playing church. It's a time to be passion-filled, have our priorities straight, and to be standing on the foundation of God's Word. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for those who have come here tonight. Father, these are people who care about your church. They're here. I thank you for them. I thank you for what you're doing in their lives. I thank you that they're concerned. Father, as I've preached here and looked into their eyes, Father, I sense that they agree with the words that have been spoken. And so, Father, I pray that you would add a blessing to their lives. There's a hearing, there's a blessing that comes from the hearing of the word. So, Father, I pray that you would bless their lives. Father, for those who have perhaps allowed their passions to dwindle, and that does happen, that does happen. I pray, Lord, that they'll address it. They'll bring it to you, that they'll repent, that they'll confess it and be restored completely in that relationship. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. Okay, God bless you tonight.